Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Ray Cameron, hello, sir. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. How are you today and where are you calling in from? Hi, Ross. Nice to see you. I'm well. I'm calling in from New York. Amazing. And I would imagine you're at the, are you at the BlackRock office currently? I am. You know, we, uh, I'm, I'm still making my way in five days a week on average, though we are formally required to be in the office for uh, three days a week now. But oh, I typically I see. five days. Nice. You can't undervalue collaboration in person and all that does for us. But I will say I've heard from a lot of folks um, now that travel's ramping back up, everyone's efficiency seems to have gone down. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we're readjusting now to things opening up again. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Amazing. Ray, I have been so excited to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. And a lot of our students, our members, our audience have been very, very excited to hear from you as well. I want to dive right in. Um, before we dive into the content of our conversation about you know your career at BlackRock, about your values, about stewardship as a, as a principal, can you share a bit about your background and, and your story and how you came to be where you are today for our listeners? Sure. I'll keep this a relatively high level and happy to answer any follow-on questions, but it's to really just provide a little bit of framing. First of all, I was uh, born and raised, as they say, in Fort Worth, Texas. I was born to a single mother at the time. I had four sisters. I ultimately ended up with five sisters. I was the only male in the family. Until uh, elementary school, that was our that was our situation. It was a single mother and us. A stepfather kind of entered the picture uh, in the elementary school. Didn't stay very long. There were some you know some issues with alcohol and drugs uh, that influenced his exit. While I was in middle school, around the same time, my mom decided that she needed some personal time, so uh, she uh, she left us uh, in the uh, in the house as well. So it was just as kids, really, for through high school and beyond high school as well. Some of the things that uh, I've had to kind of uh, uh, overcome in life were, you know, just challenges. I didn't start at the best place, but I told myself at a very early stage and that uh, it's not re- really where you um, start in life. It's really where you finish. Your efforts and your work can influence the outcome in terms of the trajectory of your success and your path. So we can talk about some influences along the way that kind of open that up to me. But because of those you know, kind of dire circumstances, I would say, and, you know, living without any adults in the, uh, in the house for, for a number of years, just kind of drowned myself or lost myself in books. And I would read any book that I could get my hands on. And that really uh, provided uh, some insight for me or some motivation for me uh, to really focus on education as a, as a ticket out, if you will, into a better life. Interesting. I appreciate you sharing. And I've heard your, your life story in detail and it's, incredibly compelling life story. I think the adversity that you faced, how you overcame that, and you summarize it at a very high level. We'd love to hear about some of those influences. Tell us about a few of those influences guided you, you know, throughout your career and early on. Sure. As I said, you know, the adults in the family kind of left when I was in, uh, in middle, when I was in middle school. So we had to kind of fend for ourselves a little bit, but losing myself in books was, uh, was an escape, but it also just opened up new worlds of opportunities. The Count of the Monte Cristo turned into about to be one of my favorite books. It was required reading in one of my middle school classes. 
And I just found it to uh, the, the takeaway for me at the time was that I could use all of this negative energy and turn it into something positive. I'm, I, I think that a lot of people who listen to this may be uh, familiar with the Count of Monte Cristo story. I mean, he used it for revenge. I just thought that I could use all of that negative energy and turn it into something more positive. That was, that was, a, that was a big motivating factor for me. The other thing is that, you know, I went to an all-black high school and the success in our neighborhood, quite frankly, for most of the kids was just graduating high school. I did graduate. I was the top in the top of my class, but, and I had some scholarship offers, but uh, they were partial scholarship offers. And quite frankly, even though I understood that education was really important, there wasn't anyone telling me at the time that I needed to go. And at that time, and I also wasn't convinced in my own mind, and this is kind of getting, getting to listening to that little voice, I didn't think that I was really academically ready. And so I started working full-time at a bank. I started in the mailroom and worked that full-time job, a part-time job at a grocery store for a number of years, and also went to a junior college at night. And so that was my schedule for a number of years, which kept me on a bit of a high. Either I was getting a promotion at work or I was doing well in classes at school, or I was kind of knocking it out of the park in terms of being a cashier at a grocery store. And so uh, there were a lot of those uh, focused on the positive things in my life, not the fact that what, you know, that I was, uh, didn't have a place to live for a while and was working those jobs because I needed to make sure that I had a little bit of money. I knew that I wanted to go to university to finish full time, but I thought that my financial circumstances at the time, that going part-time was probably my, my best route. But uh, along the way, I met the president of the bank at the, at the, uh, at the bank while I was in the, uh, as a mail clerk. And even though I finished, when I left the bank, I was in the management train. I was, um, in the, I was a teller in the private banking group. And so one day I went over to the president of the bank. He asked me to bring some money to him because he needed to cash a check. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm giving you the money that you, asked, that you asked me to bring. And he said, no, what are you doing with your life? And so I explained to him that I was going to school at night, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, listen, the trajectory of your life can be very different. If you uh, go to college full-time now, just stop for a couple of years, it's going to take you four, four more years to finish going part-time. If you finish going full-time and you get into a good program, the, the, the lifetime earnings are going to be much greater and it can open up more opportunities for you. So you should seriously consider that. I took that advice to heart, and about a year and a half later, I transferred to, uh, to UT Austin to finish up full-time, cobbled together lots of scholarship money, was able to, uh, to get into to UT, and I treated it like a full-time job. I think it helped me being a few years older because I understood the, the real value of it. One of the things that, uh, that impressed upon, that was I, I was impressed by as I made my way around the bank, either delivering mail or encountering people as a teller, and talking to them, I would think about individuals who were in positions of influence that I wanted to be in and what was the difference? How did they get there? And all of them had not only undergraduate degrees, but many of them had graduate degrees as well. So it really cemented uh, the importance of an education for me. And, and Russ, my motivating factor, I never wanted to be the wealthiest guy on the planet. You know, I never wanted to be a millionaire or a billionaire or anything like that. I just wanted to have some financial security. And I wanted to be in a position where if I was fortunate enough to have a family, I wanted to be able to provide for them. And I wanted to be able to have my kids start at a different place in life than I did. So those were just some of the very core things that I really wanted to be able to do and to, uh, to have kind of a centered and a productive life. I think it's so incredible, Ray, that as you're doing classes at night, you're working 
the teller, right? The private bank, someone mm-hmm. just, the president of the bank comes and says, Hey, here's a quick nugget of wisdom. And that, you know, here's, here's a quick insight for you. And that completely transformed potentially the trajectory of your life thereafter. I know that in our conversations that we've had, you've had some of those nuggets of wisdom of insight that I've personally found really, really helpful. And what's interesting to me is I also, you know, faced a lot of adversity in my family, parents divorced when I was young, it was a total mess and it wreaked havoc on our our lives. But similarly had a few mentors like yourself kind of come alongside me and help show me the way and give me some of those pro tips, if you will, those keys that unlock the next level of life, if you will. And I speak to a lot of students who have faced adversity, especially people of color, students of color, women, a whole host of, of, of students who have faced adversity and they really think, you know, finance is not for me. There's no way I can get in. Finance is, you know, investing is this industry full of people that have had this perfect linear trajectory, went to the Ivy League school for undergrad, parents paid for college, right? They look like I look. And so I wanted to ask, what were some of the narratives that you were wrestling with or some of the tapes that were playing, if you will, as you were beginning and ascending your career in finance or right, coming from that background? And, sure. and the, the the thrust of the question is for those students or even just any young black men, young Latino women, people on people listening to the podcast who might feel like some of the challenges they faced um, are putting them at a disadvantage, you know, mm-hmm. kind of how would you speak to them, right, about how they they think about their own life and career? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, early on, I started to think about how I could turn my disadvantages into advantages. And if you think about, you know, for, for example, because everyone has a narrative, everyone has a story. And the, and the interesting thing is that we get to tell our story. And so one of the things that I found is that people love to tell their story. And in fact, I think one of, one of the things that has helped me throughout my life is that I have taken an interest in other people and their story because I can learn from them. And what I find is that even in you know, my professional life, in, a client, in my client servicing, uh, client-facing roles, what I found is that um, clients will tell you exactly what it is that they want you to do for them. But you have to actively listen and deliver on that. And when you deliver on that and you're consistent around it, you can develop some amazing relationships. And uh, it's interesting because I haven't spent a lot of time in my life telling my story, quite frankly. Because I've been busy living my story and listening to other people's story, trying to build a ladder, if you will. But I would say that, you know, facing adversity is key. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is as I look back on my life. I thought that, you know, I was really at a significant disadvantage, quite frankly, for example, because I didn't grow up with parental figures in the house. And I know that for a lot of people, that is a major negative. You know, growing up in a single mother family, there weren't any parents in my house for a number of years. Well, one of the things that it taught me was that I needed to make decisions for myself. And so I became comfortable making decisions for myself and taking ownership of them. And so as I started to engage with, uh, with people and start to ask them about their story, one of the things that was impressed upon me was that the fact that everybody has one. I thought, you know, I don't necessarily want to be, I don't want to replicate anyone else's story, but I can learn things from them. I can learn some best practices, if you will, and I can incorporate them into my life. And so some of the things or uh, principles, if you will, or kind of nuggets that we talked about um, in, the, um, uh, in the past that I've shared with you is like, know who you are. You know, one of the things that I, I think I struggled with a lot early on was, what are my core values? Who am I as a person? Uh, what do I want out of life? Because there wasn't this blueprint, if you will, that you may have had and others may have had, you know, in parts of your life. 
there weren't a lot of uh, successful people around me. There weren't a lot of successful marriages around me growing up. So I wasn't sure that I actually wanted to get married, quite frankly, because I saw a lot of marriages, quite frankly, that just didn't work. And also I saw a lot of people who were, who were really unhappy and in their marriages. And I thought, why would you be married or stay, or stay in a marriage that you are so unhappy in? Can you just, I just figured I can be miserable by myself. I don't need to be miserable with another person. And so I kind of grew up thinking, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to get married. If that happens for me, that's fantastic. Fortunately, you know, when I moved to New York, I met a fantastic woman and uh, we've been married for 27 years. We've got two kids. Both have graduated from, uh, from colleges, which I'm um, really proud of them. But I've tried to instill within them just kind of core values as well. And one of the things that they'll say, they'll whisper to me often is, yes, dad, or they reply to me, yes, dad, I know who I am. Because the part, the thing that I wanted them to understand was that there are, are a thousand people who have opinions about things. The opinion that matters the most, quite frankly, is yours and what you think about yourself. So don't let other people basically tell you who you are or what's important to you. Innately, there's a part of you that knows that. So know yourself, know who you are. Don't be afraid to do the work. You know, a lot of people want success. They want it instantly, but they don't want to put in the work. They want instant gratification. They want to be, you know, the, the headline performer at a Broadway show. They want to be the, uh, the lead actor or actress in a, in a movie. They want to have their own television show but they don't want to do any of the legwork or the hard work to actually get there. They don't want to do the nuts and bolts. They don't want to put in, put in the time. Trust your instincts. You know, that's something that I learned early on. I made a lot of mistakes. And fortunately, you know, there weren't uh, cameras and the, and the internet wasn't as pervasive as it is today in terms of kids growing up. So there's not like this long history that people can kind of look back and say, oh, these are the mistakes that Murray made that are publicly recorded. Fortunately, they're not. But I made a lot of mistakes. I did some very stupid things, but I learned from them. And that was the thing that I asked myself, what can I learn from this and how can I get better? And that, that's on us, right? Sometimes life throws us curveballs. But the lessons that we choose to learn from that and how it informs our, us or propels us going forward, that's really on us. And we, we have the power to make those decisions. And the other one is that I would say to just underscore that be your own standard bearer. Um, and all of these kind of overlap in a way. And it's kind of knowing yourself, understanding what it is that you're trying to achieve. And when I say be your own standard bearer, sometimes that, that takes the pressure off of us comparing ourselves to other people. And I know from my own kids, that is really, really is much more challenging today, particularly with, you know, the Internet and everyone being their best self, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is those are those those are their lives and they're only presenting to you a snippet or, of, uh, of who they are as an individual. So don't compare yourself to other people. I know that's a hard thing to do, but the standard of excellence should be kind of within you can kind of compare yourself to some people who've achieved greatness and say, oh, I want to achieve something similar to that. But we all have our own path, if you will, to carve. And we have opportunities uh, that, uh, that shape us. But we also have a, have a role to play in terms of how those experiences propel, can propel us forward. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, define your own definition of success and uh, hold to that. Don't let other people basically impose their, own, their limitations on you. And that's one of the benefits, actually, that I think in hindsight that I had growing up in a household with our parents, because parents, most of them mean well, not all of them, but they mean well. But they are also informed by not only how they've grown up, but the experiences that they've had. And most of them are trying to shape their kids in, uh, based on the information that they have at the time and their own experiences. But uh, we all are very different. We have different paths. And so I didn't have that growing up. I could make my own decisions. I think that 
not having those limitations imposed upon me in a way was liberating. And it allowed me to maybe take some bigger risk. You know, I was, uh, when I went to UT, I was, after I graduated, I went on to graduate school at SMU and I was the first African-American president of my class. I was, I had intended on, on running for president, quite frankly, but the dean of the business school, he said to me, you should run. I think that you're a natural leader. And I think that the kids in your class could kind of use the insights in terms of the life experiences that you've had that could benefit from those. So I ran and it was, that was a transformative experience for me. And then I, I moved to New York after I gave the graduation speech. I remember that Sunday, two hours later after I gave the speech, I was on a plane heading to New York to work uh, in the management tra- uh, training program at JP Morgan. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I'm moving to New York. I only know a handful of people there. What have I done to myself? But I wanted the experience of working in a big city. I wanted the experience of working at the financial center of the world, in my opinion. And I think some of the limitations that people had you know, been in my life and said, oh, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. If those voices had been pervasive, I may not have taken some of the risks that I took because I think I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think if I had grown up in New York, for example, and I had seen Wall Street, for example, maybe I would have thought that was too big a stretch for me. But because I didn't grow up here and my mindset was wherever you are, whatever you're doing, do the best you can go for the brass ring, because those are stepping stones, even if it's something that you're not innately interested in. I thought that uh, when I got to New York and I started talking to people in commercial banking, literally everybody wanted to work on Wall Street. And I thought, well, if that's where the fun is, if that's where the action is, if that's where the money is, and I'm only here for a maximum of five years, that's where I should go. So I talked my way into a job at Morgan Stanley. And it was challenging. I mean, uh, you and I have talked about this, but there was I talked to a couple of headhunters and they said, you're, you're not from a named family. You didn't go to an Ivy League school. You're not from the East Coast. No one is going to hire you to be on the front line. You know, you might be able to get a job in operations and work your way up. And I thought, I can do better than that. And I proved them wrong. I talked my way into a job. I ended up on the equity sales desk at Morgan Stanley. And I was at Morgan Stanley for almost 15 years. Became a managing director, only the second one in equities in the U.S. And uh, there were some bumps and bruises and challenges along the way. I, uh, I persevered. And, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting journey. Sorry, I, 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 got, I was trying to fit in a lot into that response. And I think I may have got, gone on a few tangents. So apologies for that. <laughs> No apologies necessary <laughs> at all. As always, when we connect, I'm in rapt attention and have like a thousand questions that proliferate <laughs> based on what you just shared. Uh, what I appreciate you sharing though, because I think you shared a lot of context that I think creates a really broad and full picture, which is very helpful. You had this tenacity, this grit, this determination, really self-motivated to work your way into Morgan Stanley. You were there for 15 years, had a very, very impressive ascent at the firm, knowing who you are, doing the work, trusting your instincts, being your own standard bearer, establishing your own definition of success. So many things that you shared make a lot of sense in my opinion. And I've there's so many things I want to react to. One thing I will react to that's really interesting to touch on is you had shared that know who you are. Right. I love, first of all, I love the fact that your kids whisper that to you, like the knowing whisper, dad, I know who I am. There's a part of me that hears that and is like, I would feel like such a success as a father. If my kid, <laughs> if one of my children said that to me, cause I hope they know who they are. Right. And what I oftentimes would tell our students is that, and I think you actually uh, painted this picture on one hand, what people think of you matters completely. And on another hand, what people think of you doesn't matter at all. 
And the way it matters completely, like you said, is, you know, there are gatekeepers, mm-hmm. right? You want to get into Wall Street, you have to convince people, other people that you are capable of succeeding in Wall Street. You've got to present well, you've got to be respectful, show deference, understand basic etiquette. We're a social species, we're interdependent, intersubjective, right? So we, re- we rely sure. on others for success to have a piece of the pie. And so in that regard, what people think really does matter. But on the other side, where I think you're, what I think you're touching on is who we are and what we stand for, our identity, our self-esteem, our self-worth. We should be our own standard bearer. That should come intrinsically. And we make that choice. We don't let anybody else define our success or our worth, which I think is so important. And I think for the people listening, a lot of the students, I'm surprised at how much they need to hear it in one hand. And on the other hand, I'm not surprised because gosh, I needed to hear that when I was in college. Talk about making mistakes. Like any of my former classmates at Fordham listening are probably like, this is Ross Overline right now, <laughs> that, that clown. So, but yeah, one, one thing I wanted to follow up on that I wanted to, to really dig into here is how your principles and values changed or evolved over the course of your career, right? Because you mm-hmm. went from pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? providing for you know siblings, charting your own course. You get into Morgan Stanley for 15 years, rise to managing director. Here you are now at BlackRock, the largest asset manager on earth. You were just the head of investment stewardship for the North Americas. And you've just started a new role, which seems incredibly exciting as the head of strategic, the strategic partner program for the Americas and the head of corporate client strategy for the Americas now. I'm curious, on that path, on that trajectory, how have you seen your principles and values change or evolve? Um, those are, uh, again, lots of threats to pull on there. But I would say that, you know, to answer your question directly is that, you know, we, though uh, there's an element of kind of, when I say knowing who you are as an individual, it's also recognizing that you change and evolve and, and, and you grow. A lot of people, quite frankly, stop growing. Some, if we look back on our friends, some of them stopped growing in high school. <laughs> some of them stopped kind of pushing themselves forward after college. And some stop pushing themselves forward after they get their first job. So as I look back on uh, my different experiences and sets of friends, I've been surprised at the number of people who kind of almost just kind of stop in their own mind. They stop imagining. They stop evolving. And it's not to say that they're not living. It's just that they become static. And so for me, I think that my wife would probably say that I'm probably on a spectrum of ADD uh, in that my attention, I found in my professional career, Ross, that my attention span usually is about three to four years in that I tackle a problem, I dig, I burrow into it, I figure out all, all the nuances around it, I fix it. And then when it's time to you know, just kind of manage it in kind of maintenance mode, I start to lose interest a little bit and start to think, what else can I do? I need a new challenge. But that actually helped me, particularly was useful on Wall Street because Wall Street evolves, right? Wall Street morphs into whatever it thinks the world needs at the time. If you think about the uh, economic cycles, right? In boom markets, Wall Street says to corporate America, you need to be bigger, you need to define define bigger. So you need to either make massive investments or you need to uh, acquire um, different companies so that you don't become obsolete, right? So you want to stay on the cutting edge. And uh, when, uh, when things are not going as great, then they say you need to shrink. You need to be a little leaner. You need to co- focus on your core operations. And one of the things that I found fascinating about Wall Street is that it morphs. It's like this animal that kind of changes. And the reality is the reason that it does is because Wall Street is just a collection of people. 
That's all it is. People and how they think and human behavior, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that I found about myself is that I could reinvent myself or I could find new interests or offshoots of interests because I find learning fascinating. You know, for example, I mean, I went from being an equity salesperson to being a technology specialist during the tech bubble to uh, creating a business called corporate access. And now every Wall Street firm has some has some version of corporate access on it. But I that that particular business was from listening to my clients, um, asking them what it is that you need. How can we serve you better? How can we help you better? But here at BlackRock, one of the things that you know I've, I've continued to evolve, if you will, is just a love of learning and continuing to think about ways that I can be relevant, figuring out ways that I can help, and quite frankly, where I can help impact and where I can make a difference. So one of the big changes for me was that, you know, through the early stages of my, call it my late 20s, early 30s, there was a lot of negative energy propelling me. Because if you think about my circumstances, family life, et cetera, et cetera, that's a lot of neg- negative energy that I'm going to prove them wrong. I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. People would say, oh, you're not from the right school, right? have the right profile, et cetera, et cetera. This little voice in my head would say, prove them wrong. You can prove them wrong because you know better than them who you are and what you what you can do. I've never been the smartest guy in my class, but I was I I was very determined that no one would ever outwork me, and that's really served me well. Just having a really strong work ethic. But you know, I found in kind of my mid career, once I've been married, I looked back on my life and I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to be in poverty. I'm probably not going to starve. My kids are probably going to be okay. My life's probably going to be okay. So what's my motivation going forward? And then I start to think about what kind of impact, how I could really help others. So I got involved in you know, education because that's obviously helped me a lot. I was the, uh, the board chair of a uh, private school in Harlem, which, we, which through my leadership, we transformed into a charter operations. Got a couple of charter schools now, one in Harlem, one, uh, in, one in the Bronx. And so that blueprint hopefully allows them to continue to expand and grow and to exert a very positive influence in the education arena. And so I think for me, I don't think my core values and who I am as an individual have changed. I think it is kind of how I think about them, how I process them, and quite frankly, where I see my place in the world. One thing I did want to um, highlight is that I hope that I haven't painted this picture that you know, I incorporate everything positively and I'm just this, you know, I've got everything together. Absolutely not. My wife would would uh, would disagree with that, who is a licensed and professional therapist. Maybe, you know, my uh, one, my, one of my secret sauces in life was that I actually married a therapist. I don't actually pay for it. I just kind of get it for free. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely has, uh, she's definitely been, you know, a, a great uh, light in my life in terms of helping me, you know, understand some of the challenges that I had and how they impacted me, quite frankly. But uh, I just want to underscore the fact that everything has not been kind of this straight line of, you know, roses simply because I decided one day that I was going to be successful. So that's not really how it worked. I mean, one of the, I mean, I'll, I'll highlight, you know, I, I battled racism. I, bat- I battled the challenge of low expectations of uh, people of color. And I've certainly, you know, battled my, my early, you know, childhood as well in terms of kind of overcoming that. But, you know, again, we get to write our story. We get we're, we get to write our narrative. And simply because, you know, those early influences were there or circumstances were there, I think it's just important for me to, uh, for the audience and for people to, uh, to, one of the big takeaways is that you're not defined by those things. If you allow them to define you, that they will. You know, one of the imagining directors at Morgan Stanley pulled me into a conference room after I'd been there for a couple of years. And he said to me, you're too nice. You will never make it in this business. 
You need to yell and scream at someone on the floor. You need to just dress somebody down so people will respect you. And I thought, well, if that's what it takes to be successful, I'm probably not going to make it here because that's not my style. So, but I thought, you know what? I, and I just said to him, well, we'll see. And I thought maybe he's right. Maybe I'm in the wrong profession, but I think that I can treat people with dignity and respect. And, and I think that that will serve me well over time. If I focus on my clients, if I, if I respect them, if I understand what it is that they are trying to achieve and deliver on that and be smart about it uh, and outwork my competition, maybe I'll prove them wrong. And I'm, I'm still in the business. And as many people, some of my uh, counterparts or colleagues would say, I'm probably past my expiration date in terms of Wall Street. There aren't that many people who've been in the business as long as I have. And I think part of that success is that I've just been able to, you know, kind of follow the puck a little bit when I start to lose interest and start to think, okay, my, my learning curve is waning a little bit. Where else can I add value? I've kind of raised my hand or I've identified things and said, hey, I think there might be an opportunity over here. Have we thought about that? I love it. Uh, what's interesting is I think increasingly there are a lot of industries like technology, especially fintech. And I'm out in Silicon Valley and this is what I live and breathe. There's a lot of very young people in the industry. And I'm of course, including myself in that as just having turned 30 as a child still more or less, but there's not a sense of history. So I do think maybe the expiration dates that society sets are too soon. We, I think we need some more wisdom in the rooms of where people are making decisions. And I think that's actually a really good segue um, into another topic that I wanted to pivot towards your role at BlackRock, right? And really talking about how we apply some of your, your values and lessons to finance. BlackRock is the largest asset manager on earth. Last I looked, there was approximately nine and a half trillion dollars of assets under management. And your role for quite a, a long period of time was the head of investment stewardship for the Americas. Um, of course, now you've, you've got this new role you stepped into. I would love for you to unpack for the audience, for our listeners, our students and our members, what stewardship looks like. Um, how does how did and how does BlackRock think about stewardship? When you are an asset manager with a fiduciary responsibility to deliver a return to your clients, but we increasingly recognize and cannot escape the very, very obvious reality that where we invest capital has an influence on people's lives, on society, on its evolution, as you talked about, because every industry is just people too, right? And money, money is simply an incentive. Where money goes, energy and human effort flows. You know, you could invest $9 trillion into casinos and we could addict the entire planet <laughs> to gambling in the next five years or $9 trillion could move towards sustainable energy. And maybe we can stop all of the horrific effects of climate change faster and avoid a catastrophe. So mm -hmm. um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on stewardship. And really as a representative of BlackRock, how have you seen the firm think about stewardship? Sure. Well, look, listen, it's a very good question. Well, first of all, I want to uh, you know make the, uh, the point that as an asset manager, we're not the uh, beneficial owners of the assets that we have under management, right? And so we are, the money that we uh, have under management uh, is, you know, uh, typically uh, retired to retirement or, or associated with retirement money, for example. Of the uh, figure that you highlighted in terms of assets under management, half of those dollars are in uh, index-oriented products or strategies. And stewardship represents the voices of those investments, if you will. So iShares, ETFs, those index-oriented uh, or passive funds, if you will. And so because BlackRock is 
through that representation, one of the largest shareholders in terms of literally every public company. And we don't have the option of voting with our feet because these are index-oriented products, right? So if we're unhappy with how a company is comporting itself, we don't have the option to basically sell it, right? So we have to stay there. We have a seat at the table. And from a fiduciary lens, we think it's important for us to use our voice to encourage companies to take the decisions through a longer lens that really support sustainability. Because if you think about the fact that most of the investments that are through BlackRock are associated with retirement, you're looking at a 20 or 30-year lens. So instead of companies being maniacally focused on the quarter-to-quarter results, which can have some disastrous results over time in terms of capital appreciation and creation and companies go out of business, et cetera, et cetera, we think it's better for companies to take decisions through a longer lens that underpins their sustainability so that they can actually be around to uh, support the retirement dreams and aspirations of the firefighters and the policemen and the teachers whose money we actually are representing. And so we use our voice to encourage companies to make those decisions, both from a, 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 a corporate perspective, as well as you know, from a governance perspective that really underpins sustainability. One of our uh, principles, uh, one of the things that we believe as an organization is that climate risk is investment risk. And so we are very interested in how companies are thinking about and mitigating uh, the impact that they could have, quite frankly, in their business from a climate perspective. And literally every company will be, is or will be impacted by, uh, the, uh, by climate change. And so we're asking companies uh, to uh, help us understand how they're, or how they're thinking about it, as well as some opportunities that they may be trying to capitalize on as a result of really understanding the enterprise risk that's associated with climate risk. That's just one example. The other example on things that we talk about are human capital issues. Every company, every every company, private or public, will come will tell you that part of their most important assets or their most important assets is their human capital. It's the people who come to work every day who execute on these these blueprints and these plans. You can have a great strategy, but if you don't have the right people in the seats who are executing it, that strategy is not going to come to fruition. So people are critically important. I certainly don't have to you know, highlight the importance of, uh, of human capital management that we've seen as a result of COVID. And so companies have said this for a really long time, but the companies that really focus on their employees and try to create uh, or position themselves as an employer of choice. And that you know, has to do with you know, providing a physical environment or, or providing services or that support mental health so that employees can really be optimal in terms of the work that they do. It is understanding some of the challenges that they face if they are, you know, a single breadwinner or if they are childcare or if they have elderly parents. But it's just understanding how companies are comporting themselves around that so they can position themselves to be an employer of choice. This new generation behind this, which you are represented above, quite frankly, what we're finding in their multiple surveys that really underpin this, not only do you want to invest in companies that embrace ESG and recognize that they have a broader responsibility to communities that they serve in and to the, their global footprint and to their supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. They have a broader responsibility in terms of how they conduct themselves. You want to invest in companies that um, you know, have this as part of their, their, their purpose and their core, but you also want to work for those companies that embrace that as well. And the third leg of that stool, you want to buy from those companies that embrace it also. And we saw all of those kind of come together in spades, if you will, particularly over the past couple of years. So the companies that are kind of on the leading edge, quite frankly, and the companies that are, are positioning themselves to be successful in the future, quite frankly, are embracing what is more commonly known as these ESG factors. Some people call them kind of soft factors. I don't think that they are. I think that they are a core to the operation of the company. 
companies are talking about these things as a uh, fiduciary and as an asset manager, we're asking them to be more public in terms of their disclosures so the investors can make more informed decisions as to how they are thinking about these very critical issues. Because we are, we have been on record as saying that we believe that over time, you'll start to see an equity premium to those companies that actually embrace these factors and really position themselves. We've actually seen that over the past couple of years. And so one of the things that I think will happen over time is that these ESG factors, quite frankly, will stop being kind of separate sideline software issues that should be part of the core and the fabric of the company. Uh, and you won't have this kind of resistance in terms of uh, viewing them as kind of software issues and not really impacting the bottom line, because the reality is they do impact the bottom line. Of the company. I appreciate you unpacking a pretty broad view on stewardship and diving right into ESG, which is, of course, an incredibly hot topic among the investment community across asset classes right now. Uh, it's been surprisingly controversial, ESG, I think. And I've seen sort of a split down the middle of ESG is real, it's important, it's needed, we need to do this uh, for a lot of very obvious reasons to ensure, you know, you mentioned climate risk is investment risk, that impacts our lives, the, the social implications of a business or program also affect the economic machine, which is also, again, just people, the mm-hmm. governance, right? To ensure that there aren't any any corruption risks in a business, right? And that power is you know, equally distributed, that there's, there's proper oversight. The whole, the whole argument that ESG is just simply greenwashing and that there are firms that are racing to greenwash to get a hold of this, this capital that is hungry for ESG positive assets. What is your BlackRock's response to that, that this is all greenwashing or it's, it's a, yeah, I'll stop there. What is your reaction to this is all greenwashing? Well, the, uh, if you you know kind of look at kind of the flows of capital, if you will, what we are seeing is that there is very hungry. There's a, there's a global demand, quite frankly, for companies that are bracing these factors, so to speak, uh, and comporting themselves in a certain way. We are, as an asset manager, one of our responsibilities from a fiduciary perspective. We believe that uh, that part of what we are doing is providing uh, investors choice so that they can express themselves in terms of how they want to invest. And what we are hearing and have been hearing consistently, and if you look at the flows of capital, it really underpins this, particularly in terms of ESG, you know, oriented funds, et cetera, et cetera. There is there's definitely interest in investing in companies, you know, that kind of have this wrapper, if you will. The reality also is that you've got some bad actors out there. You know, you see it in every economic movement, right? Every economic development or new development. You see actors, quite frankly, who are not in it necessarily for the right reasons. They're in it just for the money. So there might be an element of that. But if you pull back the layers of what companies are doing, and if you look at kind of what companies are saying as opposed to how they are investing capital, if you look at the decisions that they're making from you know a corporate lens, how they're comporting themselves, if you look at the plans that companies are putting out in terms of their net zero, you know, not only their aspirations around getting to next to net zero, that has to be underpinned, quite frankly, by technology investments because you don't have a lot of the technology that actually can get us to net zero in a reasonable period of time. You got to have the the, the 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 underpinning of that basically has to has to make sense. So you've got to start to see kind of how the threads start to come together. So. I think that you know you certainly are going to have the pundits out there. You always have them, and, uh, and 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 you also have you know individuals who are basically just trying to take advantage from a financial perspective. But the reality is, these things are real. Climate change is happening. It does impact companies. The more information that investors can have, 
that uh, will basically let them make decisions in terms of whether companies are positioned and whether or not they are doing the right thing in terms of mitigating those risks and take advantage of it. That can only happen by investors having more information. You know, one of the other things I think that's kind of missed if we, as we talk about ESG and kind of the whole discussion around it and greenwashing, et cetera, et cetera, we live in a more transparent world. You know, if you think about 20 years ago, how companies comported themselves, you had this board that met secretly that was often controlled by an autocratic CEO who basically said, this is what we're doing. They weren't accountable to anyone, right? As long as they kind of printed profits, that was fine. They blew up because they, you know, had a supply chain issue or they had labor practice issues or whatever, right? There's sourcing issues, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff was kind of in the shadows, right? And very few people really learned about it. And every now and then you have these big scandals that kind of erupted. Well, the reality is that we live in a very transparent world. Global companies in terms of supply chains, et cetera, et cetera, all of that is just kind of, there's much more accountability across every facet of how companies comport themselves. And one of the things that we're trying to do is encourage companies to give investors information and insight so that they can make informed decisions and they can decide whether or not they want to invest in this company in terms of their operating plan, et cetera, et cetera. And companies that are that are recipients of uh, of public uh, funds, they have a responsibility, quite frankly, of making sure that those investors have information where they can make decisions around. So I know that there is a discussion out there about whether ESG is real and greenwashing, et cetera, et cetera, but the proof is actually in the pudding. Look at what is actually being done. Look at the investments that are actually being made by some of the leading companies to really position themselves for the economy of the future. I love it. I appreciate it, Ray. What comes to mind for me is almost applying Pascal's wager, you know, this theological principle to ESG, right? It's like, hey, whether ESG is real or not, um, whether you believe it's real or not, if we all just choose to believe it and make it so, the world will be better off. Our investments will be better off. The public, the public who are investing their public funds in these public companies <laughs> will be better off. It's just a win-win-win in my opinion. Um, obviously, we need to... to ensure there is not greenwashing. And I think there's something to be said for rewarding participants who are authentic and genuine. But what I tell the naysayers is there may be some degree of greenwashing, um, but even in a world where if everyone was actually doing it and subset of them just weren't motivated altruistic reasons or because they actually want to make an impact, they just wanted a piece of the pie. Well, hey, with enough of Wall Street all investing along ESG criteria, there is going to be downward pressure on cost of capital for businesses that are creating societally born costs and externalities, right? Like the, the people still right. win, the people still yes. win. So yep. not to get preachy on this, I get a little bit passionate about this subject. Um, and also to the naysayers who say, oh, well, there's no shared standards or accountability metrics. That's okay. If there are three or four different sets of metrics, they are all very good, strong metrics, even if firms have proprietary metrics. We had Scott Mather, the CIO of US Core Strategy and Sustainable Investing at PIMCO on, and they have trillions of dollars that they're putting into ESG positive investments and are saying the exact same thing, right? So I, I appreciate you sharing. But those were those reporting centers, they evolve over time, right? FASB did not, you know, suddenly appear one day. There was a journey. It was over a decade before we actually got to, you know, the standards around FASB that we have today. So the fact exactly. that people are saying, you know, the uh, TCFD and what's the reporting around it or SASB, et cetera, et cetera, they, they're evolving standards. And so give us a little bit of time. It's going to happen. It's happening as we speak. I like it. I like it. I mean, gap gap principles had to evolve, right? Exactly. <laughs> and over over time, you we all coalesce around what we all believe are the best metrics. 
Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Ray. I know we've got two minutes left here. Um, I want to ask you two rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, first, can you share what you think was one of the most rewarding corporate actions that BlackRock took or has taken or a corporate action that, that BlackRock took that you're particularly proud of? Corporate action that, uh, that BlackRock took that I'm particularly proud of. Over the past uh, four years in my investment stewardship seat, we had a very, very dedicated focus on diversity, particularly uh, gender diversity in the boardroom. And there's been a significant increase, and not simply because of BlackRock alone, but because there was a lot of attention focused on basically getting more diversity in the boardrooms. Over the past couple of years, we've been very focused on expanding that definition of diversity beyond gender. The gender fight certainly isn't over in terms of getting more gender representation in boards. But we think that uh, it's certainly appropriate to have a broader definition, including race and ethnicity representation uh, on, uh, on corporate boards. And so that's something I'm particularly proud of, the work that we've done there and the success that we've seen. That journey isn't over. There's a lot of work to be done. But you look at where we were uh, five years ago versus where we are today, both through that broad definition of diversity and or, or through a narrow lens, there certainly have been a significant progress that's been made. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate you sharing. Um, sure. Inspiring, inspiring. Okay, last question. This is a bit of a layup. Um, you have been <laughs> <laughs> you have been incredibly generous throughout your career giving back. And Scholars of Finance has been a recipient of your generosity increasingly over the last year since you and I connected. You know, we had our first coffee and that 30-minute coffee turned into an hour and a half connection, right? A lifelong friendship, I hope. And you've been in very you've been very involved. Uh, you've been coaching me, mentoring me one-on-one, which has been incredibly, incredibly helpful. You've come and spoke to our team, shared some of your wisdom on a fireside chat with our team. And now here you are on the Investing in Integrity podcast as well, sharing your insights with a broader audience. Why scholars of finance, you know, for all of our listeners, you know, share why do you believe in SOF and our mission and why do you spend your time here and why might you encourage others to do the same? Well, um, I think that the principles or the, uh, the core focus of College of, uh, scholars of Finance it actually aligns with me and kind of how I think about the world and how I think about my own professional as well as my personal life. There was not an organization that really tried to focus on the ethics and morality of working on Wall Street and being on Wall Street and around the money and finance when I was growing up. And so I kind of had to kind of figure some of that out on my own. I mean, Wall Street has a terrible reputation, as, you, as I'm sure you know, and, and just in terms of being really focused on greed. And, you know, maybe one of the most famous lines ever was greed is good from the uh, from the movie Wall Street. But I think that finance um, has a very critical role in our society in terms of providing financing for, 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 for projects, for business creation. And I think that the uh, positives of finance in terms of uh, being an accelerant for, you know, entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I, think, I don't think that that gets enough attention. And I think that the, the work that you're doing and the work that this organization is doing is encouraging younger minds, quite frankly, to view finance through a broader lens, quite frankly, and not just buy into the stereotypical narrative that all of finance is bad. And if you go into the industry, you are a bad person and you don't mean you and it's soulless. That is absolutely not the case. If you think of all of the uh, the new businesses that are being uh, that are sprung up as a result of COVID and people kind of going out on their own. If you think of all the investment that needs to happen for us to get to a net zero economy or to impact climate change, there are enormous uh, opportunities for a lot of people to uh, to take advantage of. And the more that we can get the word out that finance is a viable and a profession 
that quite frankly does have an ethical core. I think the other thing that I would say is that, you know, I've been in, in the business for over 20 years. And while there's certainly a, a number of bad actors at the core, most of the people that I've had the fortune and the opportunity to, the good fortune and the opportunity to work with, quite frankly, have been very centered, very, very good people who basically, you know, want to take care of their families. They want to earn a good living. They want to do the right thing. They want to give back to communities. But you don't hear those stories. What we tend to hear are the stories about the outliers. And so I think that, you know, the work that you're doing aligns, quite frankly, with uh, what has been my experience, broadly speaking, in terms of the world of finance and the good things that can come as a result of it. Ray, so, so grateful for you coming on the podcast today. Thanks for sharing all your wisdom, some of your experience. This is just one of many conversations. I think we'll have to have you back on soon to dive in and pull pull on a number of threads that 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 emerged in this conversation today. I'm just so grateful. Thank you again for your support, for your encouragement. Congrats again on the new role. Excited to see how the new role works out and all the the change you're going to make at the firm in the in the months and years ahead. Sir, I hope you have an amazing day. Can't wait to talk Thank to you again you. soon. I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share some thoughts. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Tomorrow.